Tune in to the Onyx Report, a bi-weekly analysis of how black males of all stripes experience American society and navigate misandry. Join me, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State and founder of the concept of black masculinism to examine the issues that impact the lives of black males. From history to politics, media to policy, spirituality to economics, join me to explore the hidden stories of black men and boys and we'll discern them from the stories imposed on them. Listen to the Onyx Report live on innerlightradio.com every first and third Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out episodes on demand at your convenience on my website at www.thassanjohnson.com. Also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash dr.hassanj, Twitter at twitter.com slash lordhassan, YouTube at Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, and finally, my Black Masculinist blog at www.newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. critical analysis-based show focusing on the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male advocate, and black male studies scholar. In the show, we examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. Call in toward the latter half of the show at 310-928-7733. But I want to welcome you to the report. I want us to get started. Um, now, this is something I'm still new to, new to, so bear with us as we work through the kinks. But if if we could just boil it down, the show is, 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 is centralized around the idea of really learning how to see black men and black, really black males across age as human beings. And it's somewhat a sad state of affairs that we actually have to learn that, but it is what it is. I mean, the reality of the experience of many black males and our treatment in society is such that it is a learning process to actually see black males as human beings. And that's principally what the show is going to do uh, over the course of time as we explore different issues, current events, so on and so forth. It really is about humanizing black men in the perspective of those. And and that includes from black with black men themselves. Uh, We have been conditioned as much as everybody else to perceive ourselves as monsters, as criminals, as violent thugs, and you name it. But in every context, there is a degree of dehumanization that we actually need to deprocess ourselves out of and rehumanize ourselves. So that that doesn't even have to do with how others necessarily see us at this point. But that's the central focus of the show. Uh, And it's not about you know, suggesting that black males are incapable of of making mistakes or, you know, committing crime or anything of that nature. It's about humanizing us, even despite the situation that we might find ourselves in, uh, which is something we do for other people quite readily. We just don't really hear it done much for black males, um, you know, on social media all the time when I, I post reports about uh, different types of abuse, different types of assaults that people experience. What I find interesting is people go out of their way to explain why somebody's done this, why, you know, whether it's a mother who's brutalized her child. I posted a report the other day of a woman who ran over her son with her um, her uh, SUV. She was playing chicken with her. I think he was three years old, three years old, three year old black boy. And she ran him over. And, you know, in that regard, one of the first things I began to see is people writing me to tell me, oh, she must have been stressed oh, she must have been going through quite a bit. And I found it interesting that how she felt and humanizing her took precedent over his lives with some people. But I noticed when black males commit certain types of crime, that kind of humanistic perspective is not forwarded to them. They're, they're usually treated just as, as, as monsters. And I wish I could say that that was limited to just pop culture or mainstream culture, but it's it's pre- it's prevalent across the board. And I'm going to give you a few examples in a moment. But I'm having this show, and, and, and 
you know, roughly a week after the anniversary of the uh, murder of Emmett Till. Um, and alongside that, we can also acknowledge his father, who was, if I'm not mistaken, in Italy, was put to death for um, an accusation of rape as well. So in that, both Emmett Till and his father represent uh, exactly the type of aggressive black masculinity that I'm talking about and, and how it's treated and regarded regardless of whether or not the black male in question is innocent. Right. Uh, and so, again, the, that that's the focus to humanize black males. And why? Well, the reason why is because ultimately I am in support of uplifting the black community. I do want to see a community that um, is able to sustain itself, to develop and to redevelop relationships that um, we've seen torn asunder, most particularly from decades of policy that's turned um, men and women against each other, children and adults, elders and middle age, you name it. There has been, in my assessment, a very targeted and focused attempt to undermine the cohesiveness of black people, and particularly families and relationships, uh, intimate relationships, familial relationships, even friendships in that regard, uh, mostly on the basis of ideology, on the basis of class, on the basis of gender, on the basis of sexuality. I've seen my community come apart. And the fall of the black family, if I'm going to use that term, doesn't take place during slavery. This is something that Joanza Kunjufu has been saying for decades. This is something that happens really after the 1960s. And so in that, in the climate of that, my goal to humanize black men is an attempt to um, work on a, form, a sort of healing for the black community. But it has to start, in my assessment and from my work, with how black men in themselves have been dehumanized and, by extension, black boys. And that dehumanization is one of the first major threads that I think has been pulled apart to undermine what we might call the black family. Um, so, again, in honor of Emmett Till, in honor of Emmett Till's father, I think, you know, that type of uh, vehement anti-black misandry needs to be called out for what it is. And notice that you don't hear that language in too many places, right? Because we don't even have misandry as a concept, you know, for the most part. When I teach classes and even when I have events with students at, at Fresno State and in other campuses I visit, sometimes I'll start by asking the question, what is, what is misogyny? And I ask them to raise their hands if they have an answer. And usually uh, over 95% of the people raise their hands, especially the women. When I ask them what misandry is, I usually get quite the opposite. It might be two people who raise their hands. And in nine times out of ten, one of them has been sitting in my class at some point. You know, there is no collective kind of perception of misandry, and especially in regard to black men. We don't associate the hatred of men with a very particular hatred of blackness and the way those two inter interconnect and target black men in very problematic ways. And it can and, and it happens across the board in, in many different contexts. And I'll give you a couple of examples as we get into this. Um, as a scholar, it's expected of us uh, to attend conferences in our field, um, and that is to update your skill set, update your knowledge, and keep you and thus the university you may teach on competitive in that regard. So it's 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 upon us to attend uh, some type of professional conference, conference usually on an annual basis, um, to update our skill set. So the conference that I've mostly attended has been the National Council for Black Studies. And this is a conference I've been going to really, I'd say, since about 1995 under the training of Dr. William Little, uh, the late Dr. William Little, um, peace be upon him, uh, who passed away. He was chair of Africana Studies at Dominguez Hills, and he was a hell of a mentor who actually saw a young black man who didn't have any real direction outside of just completing a degree. And he kind of made sure that I didn't languish, pointed me in a direction and really gave me a lot of training in and out of the classroom. Um, so, you know, it, it, I had to stop and acknowledge him for a moment. But anyway, he's a former president of the National Council for Black Studies. And as I attended the conference, one of the things I noticed most recently um, was the perspective in many respects of black men. Now, by that, I mean, uh, when I first got there, I think this was the 2015 conference, um, I walked into a session that was covering, I think the title of it was actually Why Black Boys Don't Want to Go to School. And they were talking about education from 
elementary school through college. And so this was a this was a panel and there were about, I'd say, seven people on the panel. So as I'm listening to this, I noticed that there were no references. There were no citations. There were no it it, it, it devolved into a conversation about um, who they personally knew. In other words, they talked about uh, cousins, uh, children. They talked about, you know, nephews and nieces and, you know, these kind of things. But there was no professional acknowledgement of it. There were no structural issues discussed in regard to black men. It was simply or black boys, for that matter. It was simply a, an offshoot or really a personal kind of off the cuff, you know, dismissive even statement about uh, black males. And what I, the reason I bring that up is because even even in a context where you would expect in Africana studies there to be a serious engagement with black boys. And I'm not talking about across the field. I am talking about one panel discussion, but I think it's important. It was considered OK to talk about black males off the cuff. Now, at the same time, the same conference um, heavily invested in women and girls. And I'll give you some of the numbers on that in a second. But there was never a moment where women and girls was to be taken lightly. It was not to be off the cuff. It was not something that you you couldn't get up and make a, a statement that wasn't, um, you know, qualified in some fashion in regard to women and girls, especially if it was a it was a controversial statement or a statement that may make some people upset. That wouldn't be acceptable. But for some reason, it was acceptable for black boys. You know, at that very same conference, there were presentations done uh, that really just kind of made the argument that um, we don't need to. There was actually there was one formal presentation by a Ph.D. scholar that we don't really have to use anything beyond uh, John Singleton's Boys in the Hood to study black males. Now, uh, all due respect to John Singleton, especially since he's recently passed. Uh, and that's a whole discussion unto itself in terms of black men and health. Um, but to suggest that a film should be used as an analytical tool for the lives to study the lives of black men, a film made in the early 1990s, and that be a sufficient measure, a sufficient tool to be used in 2000. I think at this time this was 2000. No, this was 2017. This is 2017 conference in Texas. Um, for that to be the argument made amongst scholars was problematic to me. Um, so at that time, it really began to be something that I really grappled with in terms of how black men were perceived, even in the academy, even amongst many black scholars. It was enough to use shorthand or stereotyped information or firsthand uh, accounts to reflect upon all black boys and men in regard to a subject as big as education. And so it's from that vantage point that I seriously try to engage um, this whole question of how to take black males seriously and what that study must look like, you know, why it's important and whatnot. Because the, the, the emphasis upon black boys um, is, is highly downplayed. And even black male scholars who are interested in studying black boys often have to temper uh, their critiques. They have to temper their language. They have to make sure that they please other people so as not to offend, despite what needs to be covered and talked about. Um, and that becomes part, kind of a problem. As a matter of fact, that was another, another thing I was going to point out, even with black male scholars coming out and being public about the treatment of black boys, not only by large scale society, but even in the black community or let alone by black women is unheard of and unprecedented. It's 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 taboo. It's not supposed to be discussed. It's buried under the water. And a lot of the reason for that is because in order to have a success, successful career, one of the things we have to do in many respects is cater to women. And so by doing so, you know, we don't say anything controversial. We don't say anything difficult. And I said this in the premiere show um, that I posted last week. If you don't believe me, think about it yourself. Think about the way Father's Day is represented and think about the way Mother's Day is represented. I can't tell you how many years I hear people question the value of Father's Day when thinking about issues like abuse and family abandonment. All of these things are acceptable to discuss on Father's Day, even to the extent of verbally or I should say publicly dismissing the need for it. 
But when we talk about Mother's Day, nobody brings up the, 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 the higher numbers of abuse to children by mothers who are more often than not the, sh- the caretakers of children. Nobody questions that. It's, it's taboo and it's considered uncouth to say on Mother's Day. But somehow it's OK on Father's Day. Right. This is the kind of dynamic I'm talking about where black males can be critiqued outright or dismissed. And if black male scholars themselves want to engage in that dialogue, it's not to be taken seriously. It's to be dismissed altogether. And so it's it's that kind of dynamic that I want to call attention to. So again, even at the NCBS conference, one of the things I noticed is there would only be a few sessions held um, for boys and, and dealing with boys and men. And in many of those sessions, and this is both the two seven, 2017, 2019, um, I think 2019 was in, um, um, goodness, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue, um, where Katrina took place. Hmm, I'm a little nervous, so uh, it, it, the city escapes me, but I'm sure you got New Orleans, I'm sorry. But anyway, it was <laughs> New Orleans. And even at that conference, I noticed the same dynamic. Um, there were only a couple of sessions for men and boys, and despite that, they were poorly attended. Some of the scholars didn't even come to present. The sessions on um, on women and girls were, were almost about 10 times as much, uh, not only in terms of the number of papers, well, mainly in terms of the number of papers, the number of, of sessions held were at about two or three times that, depending on the year. Uh, and even the number of males in, versus females in terms of scholars who came to present were were quite different. And so that becomes a critical focus. Who gets the degrees? Who's in the room? Who gets to talk about the subjects that are important to talk about, whether they be controversial or not? More often than not, we're finding that black males themselves are not in that context, right? And I can give you some raw numbers. You know, this is, uh, you know, some things, I, some data I pulled together on the NCES education website. And from 1976 to 2016, there's about 23 million white women who've gotten degrees, about 17.5 million white men, about 4 million black women and about 2 million black men. And this is basically um, this is basically over the course of about, you know, from 1976 to 2016. This is what we're looking at. This is the dynamic. So when you talk about black men with about two million degrees, who gets to be in the room and make the study, make the statement, make the analysis as it relates to black men, especially if black men themselves aren't allowed to. And by allowed, I also mean in terms of how it impacts jobs and job access, which is something that many scholars will remain quiet in the face of. I myself have experienced it, and I also know uh, a number of black males who are outspoken about male issues. And just at the inference that they focus on males, um, they won't be hired. They won't be picked up. Uh, and there, there are some serious ideological differences that make that uh, one of the dynamics that needs to be called out. A lot of the times it's a gender um uh, you know, kind of dynamic g- gender debate issues. So for the, in that regard, you know, feminists and masculinists, you know, that's the contest. That's the, the contestation. And as black males have less in regard to their numeric presence in the academy, sometimes that can work adversely against them, not only in terms of being in the room, but even being able to get a position. So what many do is remain very quiet, if they know it at all. I myself spent eight years at the Claremont College, colleges, uh, most particularly Claremont Graduate University, and my training in regard to gender was as a feminist, mainly because there was no such thing as a a non-feminist approach or even a masculinist approach. You may find a a chapter here, a paragraph there uh, for the most part, but not really a concentrated study of black men from a black male perspective. Um, That's critical. That changes the nature of the discourse and limits our range of engagement to what matters to one demographic and not necessarily what matters to another. Give you another example. A few years ago, I attended the American Men's Studies Association Conference. Um, This was about, I'd say about four years ago, uh, maybe five. But anyway, when I attended the conference, one of the things I noticed, uh, I actually was able to attend the actual board meeting of, you know, at the conference. And one of the things I saw was that the American Men's Studies Association was actually ran by feminists, not only feminists, but women, which 
in and of itself, you can gauge for yourself in terms of whether or not that's good or bad. But, you know, just put this in context. Think of the National Organization of Women being ran by a group of men and then tell me how you feel about that. So I, I walk into the American Men's Studies Association board room, a board conf- uh, meeting, and it's not only feminists, it's mostly women. And the primary subject that they're discussing is how to keep undesirable men with controversial uh, opinions out of the discussion. So again, think of the National Organization of Women ran by men where men are discussing how to keep controversial feminists out of the room. That's the discussion they were having while I sat there and listened, a conference that I flew across the country to attend, paid my money to attend, and while listening to those presentations and sitting in a board meeting, realized that the conversation on men and boys was co-opted on an ideological level. So whether we're dealing with it in terms of gender with the American Men's Studies Association, in terms of race, with the National Council for Black Studies, or in terms of employment, in terms of academics getting academic positions. In each of those contexts, I'm seeing a war waged on black men who are trying to get into positions to speak to what we're grappling with, what issues we're dealing with. Um, and that's something that I want to bring some attention to because I, I, I and a number of others that I'm closely associated with make it a point to mentor and shepherd, particularly black male scholars. Now, as educators, uh, I help anybody that comes into my classroom. I have a special affinity for black students, period. That's never going to change. But I do try and mentor and shepherd a number of young black male scholars who are coming up. And I and I, I try to warn them about those kind of difficulties. And I get calls all the time about how the very thing I'm warning them about is what they're dealing with on the basis of both their race and their gender. And yet there's no room to have a a really a cogent and in-depth conversation about what that type of alienation looks like, what that experience is like, especially when it's initiated by those that look like you, right? Men or women, right? The idea that you as a black male thinker uh, are a problem and you have to be closely monitored. This is why I actually created my blog some years ago because I noticed that there were very few conversations I could find that were academically based that allowed me to study the treatment of boys and men, particularly as I'm saying black boys and men, I'm in Africana studies, without apology or without deferring to others, without worrying about whether or not any other demographic had a problem with it. There were very few that I could find. So I posted my blog really to kind of plant a flag and to say, this is some of the information I found and go from there. Right. And that's the kind of information I wanted to put out there, because it's it it is in many ways um, kind of buried and kind of hidden. Um, And I think that's important to call out. So to ask the question, why focus on gender? You know, what is the purpose of that? Um, It's mainly because as I look at the data that I frequently run across, what I find is that black men tend to find themselves at the bottom in so many different contexts. I just went to Long Beach to visit some family this last weekend, and there was literally not an hour where I didn't see a black man pushing a cart homeless on the street. Black males constitute about 2% of the LA area, but 60% of the homeless. And in many reports that I've covered over the years, um, out of the black population that's homeless, they're usually over 90% in most of the major cities I've run across. And yet, When I look up homelessness and race, the most I find is the importance of seeing black homelessness, but we don't zero in on the majority population. As I said in the last show, if we talk about police brutality or uh, vigilante brutality on the basis of race, uh, what we find is black males are overwhelmingly attacked. And yet, you know, there's there's no specific focus on black males unless – It's of interest, right? There are particular organizations that have no problem profiting off of black male death, but will bait and switch the subject later on uh, and make the conversation about other issues, right? While, While really denigrating black males in a particular way. So the reason I focus on gender is that you know, there's there's really a lot of these issues that really need to be called out in regard to how black men themselves experience uh, reality. And, and what exactly they go through. Now, one of the ways I kind of wanted to do that today was to talk a little bit about black, anti-black misandry. And I wanted to talk about it 
um, in a specific context as possible. Um, I wanted to name a few. I have about 10 different forms of uh, anti-black misandry that I look at, that I teach in my class, I teach about in my class, that I write about in my work. And we're going to go over just a couple to just kind of give you, you know, a, a, a sense of what I mean. Uh, and I've, I've had debates on these, and, and nonetheless, people are still very uncomfortable at even gesturing towards focusing on black males beyond doing it in a manner that suits other people's sensibilities or serves the political interests of other demographics. So black males are useful to others, but nobody really wants to talk about them. But let's look at um, anti-black misandry, and I'll talk to you about a couple of different forms it comes in. So just for the sake of the rest of the broadcast, um, when I talk about ABM, what I'm really saying is anti-black misandry. Okay, So that's what ABM is going to stand for from here on out, just to give you a sense. Um, so let me see here. So the first one we can talk about is ABM heterophobia. Now, this is a, a concept that a good brother of mine, Dr. Ronald Neal, broke down in detail, and he gave a very straightforward, you know, somewhat casual answer, but it spoke very directly to what it is. It's anti-black male heterophobia. It's the idea that heterosexual black males are to be hated because they are wicked, evil, and to be feared. Now, if, if you really think about the very concept of heterophobia, you know, I, you know, I've experienced this online. You have a lot of people that will dismiss it outright. But if you think about it, this is not a new concept in American society. Whether you're talking about how black men are treated walking down the street or whether you're talking about them being lynched in the 1950s, uh, assassinated on the streets, you know, really even to this day. I mean, there, again, there's about two to 300 black men per year that find themselves killed at the hands of police officers and vigilantes, about 12 to 20 black women. So there's very much an overwhelming focus on black males as an outgroup male uh, targeted population. But nonetheless, part of what we don't talk about is why black males are feared. Now, there's a long list of stereotypes we can get into, and we will um, as the show progresses. But for the moment, I think it's safe to say that the targeted fear of heterosexual black males, although not termed that way, is important. It's important to study, it's important to look at, and it's important to call attention to. That heterophobia is the rationale behind the irrational fear of black men and the justified you know, mistreatment of them. So if we look at something like the Central Park Five, I'm sure many of you have seen the Netflix-based show by Ava DuVernay, When They See Us. And when you look at the ways those boys could be seen as dangerous men, dangerous, villainous men, the reason they could be seen that way without apology by law enforcement is because we've had decades uh, if not centuries, of socialization behind the idea that black males were to be feared, most particularly heterosexual black males. And, I, and the reason I emphasize heterosexual is because the idea that they will rape and violate women, and most particularly white women, is at the very um, bottom of the motivation behind you know, corralling and killing, if not torturing, black males, demonstrating to society the importance of dominating and eliminate, eliminating black males. This is all rooted around a fear of, of, of really heterosexual black males. So ABM heterophobia speaks to the fear of straight black males and what they may do in regard to violence and sexuality. So we're going to take a break and I'm going to come back and we're going to continue to kind of break down some of the different forms of ABM and look at what that means. All right.
Tune in to The Onyx Report, a bi-weekly analysis of how black males of all stripes experience American society and navigate misandry. Join me, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State and founder of the concept of black masculinism to examine the issues that impact the lives of black males. From history to politics, media to policy, spirituality to economics, join me to explore the hidden stories of black men and boys and will discern them from the stories imposed on them. Listen to the Onyx Report live on innerlightradio.com every first and third Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out episodes on demand at your convenience on my website at www.thassanjohnson.com. Also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash dr.hassanj, Twitter at twitter.com slash lordhassan, YouTube at Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, and finally, my Black Masculinist blog at www.newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is a system where illusions appear as reality. During this modern era of humanity, where deception is a hallmark, people are no longer able to distinguish facts from fiction. How does the Matrix work? By rewarding conformity and consent to manufacture drama, by creating a context where mass attention is focused on false evidence appearing as real, in other words, fear. fear. Do we have a chance to free our minds? Yes, by tuning into innerlightradio.com, the healing frequency to awaken your powers of discernment and deactivate the programming of the thought police. Learn about holistic living, history, spiritual concepts, natural health care, economics, metaphysics, and more. For balance and harmony, tune into innerlightradio.com, where your transformation begins 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We are the healing frequency. Okay. Welcome back. Um, just before the break, we were talking about different forms of anti-black misandry or ABM. And I started with heterophobia, the fear of straight black men, and talked a little bit about it going all the way back to the, the you know, not only slavery itself, but lynching and particularly the treatment of black men even today in regard to police and vigilante, vigilante violence, homicide and such. Uh, the second one that I wanted to talk a little bit about is uh, what I call ABM male disposability, right? Male disposability speaks to, you know, the, how black men's experiences can become the background noise um, for others. And, and the examples I give, um, you know, first my first run-in with this was a few years ago in 2014 uh, when the boys, the Nigerian boys, and I'm sorry, the Nigerian girls were kidnapped by Boko Haram. And it instantly became global news that these 300 girls were kidnapped. And that is, of course, horrendous. It needs to be talked about. I had no issue with that whatsoever. But what I didn't know was that, and there was only a small little report that came out about it, was that not long before that it happened, 59 Nigerian boys were incinerated by the same organization um, at a school. And nobody talked about it. And I found it interesting. I found it interesting. But then as I reflected upon it, and realized it, we have a large-scale epidemic happening in the United States. And although many of us are aware of it, we don't really grasp the, the, the scale of it. When I'm talking about incarceration, you know, and, and incarceration for black males is all-encompassing. As of 2013, we had over 900,000 black men incarcerated, a number that was unprecedented, really, in world history. Um, and in that, we didn't. Most people, I don't really grasp the impact of that. That once you're incarcerated, it's like a permanent scarlet letter in terms of employment, in terms of income possibility, in terms of life chances. That becomes for many black men a permanent mark, a permanent you know demotion in terms of life possibility and quality of life in regard to what they're capable of. So when I talk about male disposability, black male disposability in particular, what I'm saying is that. Um, the degree to which we can easily forget and dismiss what black men experience is acceptable for many. Um, it's at a point where at this point, I think 
uh, incarceration becomes something to grab people's attention before you again you get baited and switched into a whole nother conversation. But the scale of incarceration is something I think people lack. The impact on on how it relates to how one relates to their family, you know, the the, the impact of what kinds of options are available, the impact on the sanity of family and the and the impact on kids most particularly in regard to the absence of those fathers right and there are all kinds of studies that demonstrate the impact of father absence on kids but especially in regard to incarceration but somehow this kind of disposability is acceptable it's acceptable by industry because it produces really a a, a sweatshop cast across the country of black men who are permanently bound to producing in ways that don't benefit them but adversely affect them while we can accept that as normal and move on, right? So those are the kinds of issues I'm talking about. Now, I want to bring in a few more, but I'm not in a rush to get through all 10. I don't think I really can. But what I do want to do is really kind of take in some calls and see if we can kind of generate some dialogue around some of what I'm talking about, because I think the need for it is key. And I also think that what I, or at least what I would like to see happen is I would like to see this show become a meeting place for black males to actually not only engage these issues, but, you know, formulate ways that, you know, we can actually work with one another to improve them. Because in many respects, um, it's, it's somewhat rampant in terms of how many people can participate in this disposability, even in regard to just reflecting on black males. So I would like to actually see if we can get in some calls or address some questions so that we can continue here. Um, I'm checking in with my engineer here. Um, okay, the number again is 310-928-7733. And as he is queuing that up, um, I'll, I'll start into my third one, uh, you know, a form of ABM. Uh, and I think this is something that most are somewhat familiar with, but again, m many don't take very seriously. Uh, and that is sexual objectification, ABM, sexual objectification. And what that speaks to are the ways in which black males can be seen and often are seen as walking phalluses. And what do I mean? Um, the sexualiza sexualization of black males is actually quite common, even to the degree that we're so familiar with it, we actually don't really mind if black males are sexually assault, assaulted, uh, even by their teachers at a young age, many will applaud and celebrate uh, this dynamic and, and consider it almost a kind of rite of passage. And yet their treatment, their, human, their, their humanity um, can be dismissed altogether, right? And, and this is partly what I'm talking about um, when, I, when I deal with the issue of sexual objectification. Right. The treatment and the de it's really a form of dehumanization, but really the treatment of black men as walking fallacies and or success objects. So whether you're talking about people who use black men uh, for their material gain, status gain, or whether you're talking about the hypersexualized objectification of black men is nothing more than walking fallacies. Both constitute a form of sexual objectification that goes uh, ignored. Um, in many ways, you know, we're, we're comfortable talking about the ways that impacts women, but that's kind of part of the problem. We don't know how to talk about it in a large scale framework in regard to how it affects black men and boys. Right. And because we don't know how to talk about it, we accept it. Right. So I've seen this happen in many different contexts. But one I can give I can give lip service to is in the, in the area of teaching. That's you know my realm. I've been teaching at the university level for about 20 years and. One of the things that I've seen is many black males being sexually objectified, but because it doesn't present the same way as it does for women, even if by letter of law, it's, it, it should be supported in regard to Title IX, it, it often goes unregarded. So, for example, when we talk about uh, sexual harassment. Much of the time, we'll think about sexual harassment as, say, somebody walking up and, and grabbing, you know, grabbing you inappropriately or making an inappropriate joke. Um and of course, that, you know, those things definitely constitute sexual harassment. But at the same time, the expectation and treatment of black males as a threat can be considered a form of sexual harassment on the basis of stereotype, on the basis of the idea that black males are a threat. You know, if black males are treated as such, say, for example, people not wanting to meet with them in their office 
or making the argument that um, black males black male teachers for that matter are threatening are imposing are scary and i've heard these terms not only directed at myself i've heard it directed at other black men and yet many don't regard that as a form of sexual harassment so in other words the very idea that black men can be a threat in the classroom um is not generally regarded it's not a shorthand way we think of sexual harassment you know we just as one colleague said to me that's just that black male shit but nobody really talks about it in the context of harassment. And I think it's important for us to frame it as such because there are many situations like this, micro situations, in fact, that take place uh, on a daily basis with black males in all kinds of industries. And yet we don't even black males themselves tend to think about those things in regard to um, how it relates to the letter of law. You know, and because of that, I think we miss out on quite a bit. Now, actually, I had I had a couple of people write in, but I'm working across platforms and I'm still a little new at this. So for those of you that have written me uh, questions that you wanted me to read on the air, um, I'm not able to find them. I saw them a moment ago and I've misplaced them. I apologize. Uh, I will get better at this. So we just keep keep working with it. Be a little patient. We'll get it together. Um, definitely don't forget to, you know, you can call in directly. Uh, and we can go from there. So uh, the number is 310-928-7733. Anyway, so the importance of just those three. So the three three concepts we talked about today, we talked about uh, sexual objectification, we talked about male disposability, and we talked about heterophobia. All of those are forms of discrimination uh, against black men on the basis of race and gender and, and where that fits in the discussion, how that how we have to actually change the way we think to, you know, better assess the experiences that men and boys have, you know, and what to do with that. And, and, and especially when we talk about boys, I can tell you, for example, you know, when I was in high school, um, walking to school every day, of course, I, I ended up kind of having a nemesis of sorts. I had a police officer that would trail me for 10 minutes. He would just trail his car slowly behind me as I walked. So picture that, you know, just walking to school and seeing this car just float behind you for 10 minutes. And at least once a week, he would throw me over the hood of his car, go through my clothes, go through my bag um, and, and you know, tell me that he couldn't wait to arrest me. I don't think I told my mother about that until I was about 35. You know, I think the thinking at the time was that I didn't want to stress her out. I didn't want to make her worry. I didn't want her trying to go up to the police station. I mean, I had all kinds of ideas in my head that really were about protecting her. But my own brutalization, or not even brutalization in that context, but my own mistreatment was secondary to me. And I find this to be the case with a lot of black males I talk about. The degree of chivalry chivalry and self-sacrifice and protection of others, most particularly women, and, and if we're talking about kids and protect, protection of mothers, um, is really quite prevalent. And it's hard to measure for that kind of thing. So I am admittedly talking anecdotally here, but I am saying that nonetheless, that dynamic of having experienced that, you know, the mistreatment and not really knowing how to talk about it or who to talk about it to, but just accepting it as a part of my reality. And really the only people I think I, I talked to about it were other black males my age who were going through the same kind of things. I remember being, you know, in those, well, this is back in the 80s and 90s when, say, like the lines around or behind a movie theater would be wrapped around if it was a huge movie like Star Wars or, you know, or, you know, Terminator, things of that nature. And I remember police officers in the, and I, I grew up in the Bay Area, San Jose, Santa Clara, Sunnyvale, Oakland, East Palo Alto. I lived in, 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 in all of those areas at one point in time. I worked in East Palo Alto. And I can tell you, you know, case after case, as most black men probably can, or many, at the very least, about being mistreated, being pulled out of those movie lines, slammed on the concrete with my friends and being strip searched in front of others all to, you know, for nothing. And the degree to which that was considered acceptable, not only by uh, people standing around us, by the police themselves, but it got to the point where it was even somewhat acceptable for some of the males who were on the ground because it was it was par for the course in so many different contexts. We accepted it as a normal part of our reality. And I remember how few of us would actually talk 
to others or talk to particularly again women in our families our mothers our grandmothers because it was it was just it became part of our reality what they noticed however was the shift in our personality they noticed uh, a very a, a different kind of sensibility with me it definitely became uh, a controversial uh contrary kind of per, uh, personality developed in me very um you know uh conflict oriented you know, very challenging, even in the classroom. But I developed these frustrations out of being treated a certain way and really not having the language to explain it. And again, that's one of my focuses. That's one of the major focuses of my work is to help give black men the vocabulary to articulate their experiences. Now, yes, it is also to give others the vocabulary to help make sense of the men in their lives. But it, but I also want to give black men that vocabulary because in many respects, we've learned how to internalize what we experience, take it in and really just muscle through it or kind of John Henry through it. And this is really at the basis of a lot of, uh, you know, and I'm not a psychologist by training and I do plan to have one on the show. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the impact on our psychology, the impact on our own sense of self-worth, and we can also talk about the impact on such things as high blood pressure and stress. This kind of constant mistreatment that we've learned to internalize and accept as reality because you know there are very few uh, ways of navigating it that we could find, especially in our adolescent years, uh, had a lot to do with the change and shift in our behavior and our worldview. And so by that, I really want to kind of give us a means to really develop a new language. Now, I'm also uh, one who has been called into court, you know, to testify on the on, as a professional on behalf of black men and make sense of their experience in that context. And that, too, is another way that developing this language, developing, you know, this work as a scholar and putting this kind of language out. That's what it's partially designed for as well, not only for black men to be able to articulate themselves and their experiences in ways that we haven't in the past necessarily, but also to help create policy or at least interpret existing policy in a manner that includes black men who have been excluded. And again, that's part of the dehumanization I've been talking about, but finding new ways to include black men. So, again, if we talk about sexual harassment, if we talk about, um, you know, the, the various types of, of 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 ways that we're treated legally, there is legal precedent for grounds for black men to articulate their experience. But we're not used to having our experiences articulated in regard to policy, and we're not used to being heard when we attempt to do so. I mean, I've actually seen other demographics get farther using our examples than we are, than we're able to in many instances. And so that's something I hope to change by giving us the helping to develop the means to do so, helping to develop the means for us to, to frame our experiences in new ways and give license, give voice uh, to black boys and black men that wasn't there before. And there are many of us doing this work, but I think it's also time that we all we, we start to come together. What I often find, and this is even amongst students at a university, is black students will often kind of be siloed away from others, and black males most particularly. At my campus at Fresno State, I've noticed in the last 10 years that I've been there that the population of black students has dropped in half. And I mean, this is something that that's happening, I think, on somewhat of a national scale. But for black males, it's, it's, it's getting even worse. And what I find interesting is even amongst some of my colleagues, my black colleagues, uh, staff, faculty, administration, um, the degree to which black males and their and the numbers of them dropping, it, it's it it tends to go under the radar, even in those circles. It's considered acceptable in some respects. I'll put it to you this way. I've been attending and speaking at black graduations since I was in one as an undergrad graduating. Well, really before that. And what I realized about five or six years ago is that when I would open up the program and start to count um, the numbers of graduating black males and females, there's I've yet to be at a graduation that didn't really have a ratio of at least four to one women to men graduating. Right now, that I mean, there are there are all kinds of questions we can raise about that. How many black students who are graduating would participate in the black graduation? There are all other kinds of questions we can ask, and those are those are valid questions. I'm not dismount, dis, dismissing that. Um, but what I'm also saying is that uh, in that regard, the 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 celebration, despite the absence, would all intrigue me. So what I started actually doing. 
is I actually started speaking to the numbers graduating and I'd make the audience aware of it. You know, I'd make the audience aware of it to focus in on black males. And what it usually led to was an uncomfortable dynamic. People would get silent. People would get uncomfortable. Of course, it's supposed to be a celebratory moment. But when I see anywhere from a four to one to an eight to one ratio of black males graduating, I have to call attention to it because I want us to start thinking about why and what the issues are and doing so beyond pathologizing black boys or just dismissing the dismissing structural issues as their own individual faults, actually talking about why this is happening and not just to this one particular male, but why it's happening to a large number of them. So that's one of the things that, that, you know, I'm trying to call attention to by really trying to, to, to start a dialogue. And this is a dialogue that I would argue that black men say on YouTube are having quite readily, but, the kind of dialogue I want to see across fields uh, and, and related also to the mainstream in a particular way with scholars, that's the dialogue I'd like to see happen. Because, you know, many of us know diff different dimensions of what's going on, but we don't always know how to cross uh, pollinate and di dialogue with each other about it. Okay. Um, let's see here. This, what's going on here? All right. <clears throat> so, there are a couple of things that I think will be useful. Um, what I would like to in, do a little bit more of in, in, the, in the next show is talk a little bit about um, Ava DuVernay's uh, 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 Netflix series on the Central Park Five and get some callers in on that. Um, I'd like to do a little bit more of that in the next show and really get some feedback because I think there's a lot there to deal with. My son and I sat down. I had my son actually watch each episode back to back and we use that as a jumping off point. But those of you who follow me on Facebook know that I do that with him quite a bit on all kinds of issues. Um, but those, those are the kinds of things I want to explore. Uh, hold on. I have someone here on the line. I'm trying to... My phone is making some strange noises here. I apologize. We're We're... we're kind of getting the groove of this as we go. Um, let's see. Okay, so it's not coming through. All right. So anyway, so dealing with that, um, I'll, I'll kind of deal with one more form of, of uh, anti-black misandry just to really give you, again, some of the terms to kind of work with. The next one I want to deal with is ABM, what I call social impotence. And what this has to do with is most especially in popular culture, but also in history, the focus on black male incompetence and failure. Despite that it's often structurally manufactured, the focus of it usually dismisses black male failure as the fault of black males themselves, mostly as, as, as failed and broken individuals, and yet um, no discussion on what structural role is opened up. Okay, hold on. I think we have a caller. Um, here. Let's see. Can we bring the caller in? Hello. Yes. Hey, brother. Black hey, brother. Advocates. <laughs> How you doing, sir? <laughs> Fantastic, brother. Proud to see you doing the show. Doing I appreciate it. Job. Appreciate it, brother Sarah. Do you have a? a yeah, I think. We, no, I'm just going to say, you know, I think that the, the work you're doing is, uh, you know, very much needed. Uh, I think it's really important, as you, you just pointed out, to, to point out the, uh, the structural uh, issues that have conspired to uh, particularly uh, constrain the success of black men. And, uh, you know, Lately, you know, not much attention has been given to, you know, to those type of issues. So um, I, I think it's important that, you know, you're doing the work of bringing that out into the front forefront. And, you know, I think that's, you know, part of the process is necessary to begin the process of healing the friction between black men and black women. Definitely. Definitely. And that has to start, especially with black men, you know, gathering and gaining a voice. I mean, what I often tell my students is, you know, in, even just in my lifetime, I've seen a tremendous change in women and girls 
that is goes hand in hand with the advancements of feminism. You know, where women learn how to speak their experiences, and we can we can debate about how their their assessments of black men fit in that. But we, I think it's I think we can agree that they have a voice. But what people often overlook is that black males haven't had a social movement like that. We really haven't had a social movement where black men actually did learn how to, as a group, articulate an experience on on our terms. And I think it's important and necessary that that happen. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it, it should not be go beyond recognition of the fact that or why it is that black women have a voice and black males don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, because, I mean, there we know that the media is not a friend of any black people in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Right. And so why is it that the black woman is being given, you know, so much of a voice to the exclusion of black men? You know, right. so that's what you know, critical thought needs to be uh, given into that. You know, that's not just by happenstance. Not at all. And that's actually related because we only got about three or four minutes left. But that's that's very much related to what I was talking about when you called in. When I was talking about this notion of ABM social impotence, you know, the idea that black males are inherent failures. You can see it in media. You know, in the the slide I actually use in class, I have images of anything, everything from Jimmy Walker and good times to, you know, Martin playing certain characters, Martin, you know, on his show, the comedian. You know, there the media is replete with images of failed black men who are comedy fodder to others, but they repeat the same message of black male failure. And this and this is even repeated in black media. You know, just a random example that comes to mind is girls, girls night out. I think it was a girls trip. I forget which is what it is with Jada Pinkett Smith. You know, the, even the and even the, the most recent film, Little, you know, where you see these black males that are hypersexualized, they're walking phalluses and they really bring nothing else to the table other than, you know, being a walking phallus. These types of, of, of failure, these types of images that show us as nothing more than that are, are inhumane. But they continue to repeat the message that black men have nothing to offer, are not worthy of dialogue, not worthy of reflection, and definitely should have no impact on on even things such as leadership. And I'll go into more depth about that uh, in future shows as well. But you're absolutely right. This is not by happenstance, and it needs to be called out. Absolutely. Indeed, so. and you know, and that's not a new phenomenon. I mean, ever since mm-hmm. media has been, you know, particularly uh, the advent of Hollywood, uh, that has been a consistent theme with respect to black male imagery. Absolutely. Even if we look at the old newspaper clippings, uh, we can see it going back to Jack Johnson and before. And the idea behind it, in my assessment, was after slavery again. And I think I said this in the pilot show, you know, we re- there was really a push to make sure that public sentiment was anti-black and very particularly anti-black male. Uh, and so if we look at the work of Jim Sedanius and definitely Tommy Curry, we can see that there's a history behind this, you know, definitely pick up. Tommy Curry's book, The Man Not, if you haven't already, uh, and look at that. He does an excellent job of going back really to slavery, to the the 1800s, the 1900s, and he he charts the ways in which black males were perceived and articulated in the the public mind, or or what I would refer to as the public imaginary, and how that was necessary politically, at least in the eyes of white supremacists, to make sure that the push to vote, the push for participation was hampered and, and, and played down. So as we close out, I want to thank you for having, uh, you know, really spent the time with us. Uh, we're going to include more people. We're going to open this up. We're going to have more people uh, come in and speak, uh, dialogue a bit, and really expand on this need to create new language and humanize black males in ways that we don't see in popular media or even in social media discussion. So I definitely want to make sure that we create that habit and, and really make this more of a community, most particularly uh, of black males, but of course inclusive of everyone, but most particularly black males who, who get to reflect upon, make sense of, and even come up with solutions for the experiences we have. So I want to welcome you all again to the Onyx Report with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. I want to thank you for listening in.
and I look forward to getting feedback. I will be posting the show on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, where people can dialogue there in the comment section as well. And we'll figure out how to kind of bring the live version to other platforms at the same time. But for now, bear with me as I go through this learning process. And again, thank you for your participation. I look forward to the feedback and I look forward to a fruitful discussion.